everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. The latest in our series on progressive prosecution. A lot of people we have talked to have been running for prosecutor, district attorney, or whatever the derivation is. Today's guest, Aramis Ayala, has been in office since 2016, but announced that she won't seek a second term for what they call Florida State Attorney for Orange and Osceola Counties. Welcome to the show, Aramis. Hey, how are you? Thank you. Good. Um, So can you tell us how you ended up uh, as a state attorney in Florida? Um, well, I was elected after, you know, running for office, and I was always proud to run on something different. You know, at that time, it wasn't necessarily um, titled as reform. Well, some of them were, or progressive. I just knew that I saw the concept of practicing law as a prosecutor differently. You know, for ages, people have focused on just convictions with very little prosecutorial accountability, and it was my goal to look at people in the system as human beings treat them as human beings, seek just and fair outcomes, look at evidence-based policies, focus on people, and ultimately understanding that our system is wrought with mass incarceration, it's full of systemic racism, and I wanted to do something different. And then, as I understand it, um, one of the reasons or the key reason that you decided not to run had to do with your opposition to the death penalty and a Supreme Court decision from Florida that upheld reassignment of dozens of cases. Uh, is that correct? Let me be very clear. That is the reason that I'm not running for um, re-election. When the Supreme Court ruled that I did not have an option Um, and I had to consider death penalty, I believe that they created an arm in my office that was inconsistent with the way that I saw the practice of law. I had taken a lot of time researching the concept, understanding that it wasn't a deterrent, looking at the financial resources that we spend on it, looking at the uh, Florida leading in exonerations, looking at the racial impact. And I believe that as leaders, we have to be responsible for what we do. And being accountable means if there's not a reason to do it, we don't just do it because it's always been done. So when the court ruled that way, there was an, it was inconsistent with my view of justice, and I'm not going to run to practice someone else's image of justice. And so what does that do for the ability of a prosecutor to seek reform if they're going to have the carpet pulled out from under them? Well, that's part of the problem is that, you know, we've seen prosecutors function in a very monolithic way 
um, based upon the lack of diversity in prosecutors' offices. So now that, you know, the face is beginning to change, it brings new experiences, you know, fresh thoughts and um, very unique uh, perspectives that are more representative of the people who are in the system, now it becomes a problem. And that discretion that had gone unchecked for so many years now is being in question because of the way that it's being used by, um, you know, diverse prosecutors. And I think it creates a huge problem. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it seems it, it seems like they, they were able to kill reform simply by changing the venue. Well, no, I don't think they can kill it. I, I think that the movement is too strong. The vision of justice is too prevalent. And while they're, they're, they're desperate and, 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 you know, there's opposition fighting it, there are others who are fighting forward. Just because I said I'm not running because I don't want to um, pursue the death penalty doesn't mean that I'm done in the fight. We still have to move forward in pursuing what is real concepts of justice. So I don't believe that they've killed it. Had they put an impact on it? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that the force of, ju- of justice, the force of truth, and the force of doing what's right is much stronger. And I believe that this concept and the way that we are moving is going to still stand. And I'm curious, uh, what does it mean to be a woman and an African-American prosecutor in a state that doesn't have many of either? Well, that's definitely um, an interesting and um, unique challenge. You know, for years, um, the demographic of prosecutors across the country, let alone in this state, has been very limited. I represent 1% of elected prosecutors across the country as an African-American female. And, you know, what that does is, unfortunately, it challenges the vision of justice. You know, they say prosecutors are supposed to follow the law and seek justice. Well, if I'm defining justice based upon my life experiences and my vision of what, you know, um, this country is built upon, it's extremely difficult and challenging to the status quo. Absolutely. And, and we see people of color uh, on one side of the courtroom, and too often we see white men on the other side of the courtroom. Right. And that's, that's the huge issue is that those who understand have some um, clarity on the issues, on, you know, um, systemic issues, root issues, and want to attack them at their root and not just be responsive, but also being accountable. That's a new way of thinking. And it actually is a threat to the status quo. So the response is just as, as, as full of vitriol as you can imagine. And, you know, why, you know, I guess to hammer home the point, why is it so important that there are people on one side of the courtroom that can relate to the people on the other side? Well, I think we have to be mindful is that when we're talking about reform, too often the conversation doesn't include victims. And when you look at the demographic of victims, it often reflects the same of those who are being charged of crime, charged with crimes. So that being said, part of the representation is the interest of the victims and looking and representing their interests, um, representing the interests of the communities, because we represent communities. We don't just represent one group of people who want to see, you know, our, our jails and prisons full and death row um, complete with, uh, like, lacking diversity up there as well. We have to have it full of people with different viewpoints, because what we've been doing is not working. And if it's not working, it's time to do something different. Otherwise, we're practicing, as they always say, a sense of insanity. Absolutely. 
Um, so what do you consider your successes during the time that you've been in office? Um, I, I think that I'm, well, let me say this. I think the, the most, um, I'm most proud about the ability to raise the standard of prosecutorial accountability, that challenging the status quo, because being a voice for a true um, definition of justice, redefining justice is something that's necessary. You know, we can handle, you know, bit by bit, case by case, but when you can challenge the root of it, which is the status quo, which is lacking in accountability, those are things that I'm extremely proud about. Looking at the practice of law for prosecutors differently, that is what I'm proud about. And then programs that we have and the um, system in which, you know, my office is functioning, it is a reflection of that. That doesn't mean we don't have our issues internally, because, again, our criminal justice system is a machine, right? Whether we're there or not, it is going to continue to function. So I do have, like all other prosecutors, we have concepts of the machine functioning in our office, but we happen to be focused on the casualties that are created by that machine. So I have, I am proud of those um, systems, those units, and those people who are fighting adamantly against the casualties created by the machine, also to some people under the criminal justice system. So what are some of the memorable cases that your office has prosecuted under your leadership? Who? Um, you know, obviously all of the death penalty cases, any, any case that is related to death penalty or the challenges, those that have been removed, those are all, those are always remarkable. And, what about um, the Montalvo murder case? Yes. Um, only because that is an active and, you know, open and active investigation, it would be inappropriate for me to comment about that case. It is certainly memorable. Um, understand the facts very clearly, but to comment about them um, right now would be inappropriate. Fair enough. Um, and what big issues do you see in the criminal justice system? Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues, but they all stem from a, um, unclear and an inconsistent definition of justice. You know, um, flooding our jails and prisons with more people is not necessarily, um, justice. So those who define it that way are creating perpetual issues within our system. Um, I also think that, um, lacking, like I said earlier, which is what I'm proud of doing, the increasing the prosecutorial accountability. We have a lot of decisions that are made by prosecutors, and then once the decision is made, it's kind of wash my hands, I've done my job, when we're not really thinking about the long-term impacts. Like, if we're not considering tomorrow's release when we sentence people today, we are failing communities, people, and the entire system. So I think that we have to... Um, in order to fix the system, we have to be mindful of the thought process that leads to mass incarceration, that leads to wrongful convictions, that leads to people being um, punished versus being treated, that leads to juveniles entering the system, that actually leads, unfortunately, to increased recidivism rates. So let's look at the issue of mass incarceration. What is your office doing to reduce that? You know, I think that um, we have to be mindful of how we sentence people, so different levels of training, looking at different opportunities. I'm also, I one of the things that I'm proud of is our drug diversion program that's addressing, because here in Florida we have a lot of um, prisons filled based upon our laws, with our drug laws, um, so re- defining the way that we uh, pursue our drug cases is a huge part of trying to manage the mass incarceration. 
And how are you trying to reduce the racial disparity in the prison system? Um, again, training is one of the most important things. So I have mandatory training on implicit bias. Um, and additionally, I do a, personally, I do a discretion lecture that talks about how we utilize our discretion and how it impacts different communities each time. Um, we talk about the, um, the racial injustices that occur. So I think that's an important part of it. And the, the very candid conversations have got to be said. You know, um, keeping statistics on what it is that we're doing and who's being impacted. Those are all parts of it that, you know, can be a struggle, but I think that are important to be done. Um, and what about things like bail reform? Have you been able to uh, touch on that yet? Absolutely. Um, it's been well over a year now that I took a very stance, uh, very strong stance indicating that we should not criminalize poverty. You know, so often people are sitting in jail when they should be at home continuing their lives because their ultimate sentence isn't going to be jail. So if we don't think they're dangerous once they're convicted, then why are they so dangerous that they have to sit in pretrial? So um, I've developed a, a bail plan that we um, additionally have worked very closely with local um, University of Central Florida that is helping us to maintain some of the statistics to know the impact of what we're doing. Because it's one thing to have good ideas. It's another thing to have evidence-based policies that we know are actually assisting in decarceration, that are assisting in, you know, not prematurely criminalizing young people. All of the ideas, we want to make certain that they're not just good ideas and conversation, but that they are actually working. So have you actually been able to end cash bail? Um, I have not been able to end it. However, part of my policy, and, and, and some of that is because of the way our statute is put up. We, I have required of the attorneys in my office not to ask for it in certain instances or to, to either um, defer to um, ROR, release on a person's own recognizance, or pretrial um pre-trial release, meaning that they still don't have to put up the money. Ultimately, in our jurisdiction, is the judge, it's the judge who makes that determination, but we are standing as, as strong as we possibly can against it. So has that effort reduced the number of people in on bail? We're waiting on the numbers. That is what I said. We were, we were working closely with the University of Central Florida to keep it because it's one thing for us to have anecdotal information, but I think that the best thing to do is work with those people who are who specialize in keeping statistics and numbers and things of that nature. Have you gotten pushback from the bail industry on this? Initially, when I came out, I sure did, um, but I am not concern. You know, there are bail bondsmen who are part of this community, but as, as a unit, they'll, like the bail um, profession, if you will, is not part of what I'm attempting to cater to. We have to be mindful of human beings. And um, that is what I care about is people. And are other counties in Florida also looking toward bail reform? I think that there's been conversation. And hopefully we're all moving closer in that direction because the benefits that the state of Florida has is that our um, bail bonds, all, all of our statutes are in line with the entire concept. So it's not a difficult thing. It's just that we have adopted practices that are inconsistent with what I believe the statute says. So it wasn't a difficult task, and I don't think it's a difficult charge for anyone to become more um, connected to 
the um, actual statute that is listed versus administrative orders and what we've always done, which is part of the problem in our criminal justice system. We just do what we've always done because we've always done it. And you mentioned wrongful convictions. What do you see, at least from a prosecutorial perspective, what the biggest problem uh, regarding that is? Well, I mean, several, you know, the studies are very clear that some of it has to do, obviously, with um, misid- witness misidentification, um, people being coerced, uh, um, confessions that are not um, received properly, they're, they're not accurate. You also have um, misconduct, either by um, the investigative agency or state attorney. But either way, there's there's several things that contribute to wrongful convictions, and I think that it is the worst thing that we can do, defining ourselves as the you know the pursuers of justice to ignore that reality. And how have you tried to lessen the chance of a wrongful conviction under your watch? Well, what we do is, the first thing that I did is creating the Conviction Integrity Unit to stand for the statement that we care. We recognize that it happens, we are aware that it happens, and we have a unit in here to address when it does happen. We then take it from there where those are um, the individuals who practice in that unit are developing training programs to help others. I also have created an environment where um, attorneys are should be feeling can absolutely um, challenge an investigation, and not only can they, but they should. If they are concerned about the the integrity of an investigation, then all that's going to do is pass down the integrity of the conviction. So creating an environment where um, prosecutors are comfortable, but also having a unit that is dedicated to dealing with it and uh, training other lawyers on how not to go up that road. And I think that's an important point because a lot of offices, the the culture of the office is prosecute, get the conviction at all costs. The people that know their case the best are the prosecutors on the case, and they're the ones who know when there are problems with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, have you been able to identify any past uh, wrongful convictions using your wrongful conviction unit? Um, we've received well over 100 um, applications to our conviction integrity unit. We have closed out, I want to say, 40. Um, so we have about 50 or some cases that we are reviewing that may concern us, but that we'll, we'll, we'll deal with each one. And I'm sure it will be very clear and loud um, if and when we um, secure an exoneration. And are you hoping to have that completed before you're out of office? You know, I think that's a dangerous position to take when you're hoping for an exoneration. I think that we have to hope for truth. So even though our unit has closed, um, you know, 40, 50 cases, I am proud that despite them maybe not having, you know, established one, that we have cleared the integrity of those prosecutions. That's the key. The key isn't necessarily exoneration. The key is, I'm sorry, the key is establishing the integrity of the prosecution. Now, because we do know that there are wrongful convictions and the numbers are extremely high in uh, the state of Florida, I think that we can expect one, you know. Yeah. Definitely. And I, again, I think that's, that's the right approach. Let's make sure that the cases were, were correctly decided and that there's nobody in prison that shouldn't be in prison. Right. Um, how do your policies overall set you apart from other, uh, 
state attorneys and and your predecessor? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I think that's for the people to make that determination. I don't think that it's really about making a comparison because at the end of the day, they don't have enough information to make assessments on what goes on in my office. And I expect that level of respect. I try to return that, you know, as well. What I can say is that some of the goals that they articulate are inconsistent with mine. I am not interested in bragging on conviction rate. I recognize that when crime has been committed, um, that we should have, you know, conviction rates consistent with the actual conduct. But I think that we also have to be able to um, celebrate other wins, like keeping kids out of the system. I think we have to be able to celebrate wins where we've been able to divert so many cases. We have to be able to celebrate wins where victims feel a sense of security and confidence in the system. We have to be able to celebrate different and, and, and quantify something other than our convictions. So my desire to do that is something that I, you know, I, I'm not certain that I share with others. But again, I think as long as we're focusing on the people we serve and not the other people serving other people, we are doing the best job that we possibly can. I ran to um, protect and to serve and to pursue justice in the Ninth Circuit of Florida, and that is what I'm going to continue to do until my last day in office. I didn't run to be better than somebody else. I ran to be the best that this community could get. And along those lines, what does success look like? You know, I think success looks like a train of honesty and truth. If we have established a level of truth and honesty and integrity that builds trust, I think that is on the way to a level of success. Being able to um, sleep at night, not looking over your shoulder, knowing that you've done the right, the, the right thing in the face of all attacks, in the face of disagreement. Um, in the face of being called every possible thing, you know, I mean, whether it's racist or otherwise, um, receiving nooses in the mail, all of the things, just maintaining a level of dignity and truth and justice to me is what is success. Now, what does your district look like? It's two counties. How many people are there? What's the composition? So we've got like 1.3 million in Orange County. Um, we've got about a quarter million, maybe a little bit more in Osceola County. Um, and they're two very different and very unique counties. So like the, the individuals who serve as prosecutors, they generally remain in that county. Even though I, you know, um, oversee both of them, they generally remain in their respective counties. And is it a usual thing to have two counties represented by the same state attorney? Well, yeah, the state of Florida is, um, as it relates to prosecutors, we're divided up into a total of 20 circuits, and each circuit is made up of counties. There are some that are large, such as uh, Hillsborough, such as, um, um, I'm sorry, such as uh, Miami-Dade, that they are their own county. It depends on the size. There are some that serve very small counties and multiple of them. So it just depends um, how the lines have been drawn, what your circuit is made up of. And mine happens to be two counties, which is Orange and Osceola. And has that made it more challenging because the two counties are very different? Not at all. You know, I mean, when you, it, it's part of our responsibility, you know, to adjust. They each deserve um, a competent, strong, and, and justice-seeking prosecutor. So um, the concept of justice doesn't change. It may, the, the faces change. Um, you know, some cultures change. But truth and justice is something that is, is and should be consistent. 
How have you approached issues like police accountability? I'm sorry? Uh, how have you approached issues like police accountability? Oh, so um, I, that was one of the important issues that I refused to leave office addressing. And um, the most important thing that I did was create a, a Brady panel. And that is a panel of attorneys who are reviewing the histories and the information we may have on um, what we call our repeat witnesses, um, who we use frequently, or often uh, police officers, and looking at their histories to see whether or not they're credible. They go on a list, and we can determine whether or not they should be used, they should be used with caution, or they should not be used. Um, have you had any major police incidents since you've been in office? I mean, what do you mean by a major police incident? You know, I mean, we're always reviewing use of force um, cases. So that's, that's something that is definitely, um, you know, nonstop. So I, I think anytime there is a concerning use of force, definitely. Anytime there is an officer whose credibility has been um, compromised and we're using that to take away someone's liberty, I think anytime that exists, then it, it's, something that is memorable and concerning. I mean, uh, to answer your question, I would say, you know, something like a police shooting or um, something that ends up, you know, becoming a major issue in the media, something that draws public attention. Absolutely. I I had a police shooting um, that I believe should have been charged. The person was indicted. And um, after roundtabling it and ultimate concerns that we may not be able to secure a, a conviction, I ended up dropping it. That was a huge issue. It doesn't change my view of the case, but we have to be um, responsible when we're making decisions such as that. It was and, not an easy one. Yeah. Um, and overall, as state attorney, what obstacles have you come across, especially in trying to um, you know, enact some of your reforms? Um, I think just people understanding that it's a new day. It's a new um, vision of justice. I think those type things are extremely difficult when um, people have you know, um, what they believe justice is all about. And you know, suggesting that your, your definite, suggesting, suggesting that your definition of justice comes along, you know, with a level of incompetence or uncertainty or um, anything that has negative connotations. When the truth is, it's just a different way of looking at it. And has that been a difficult transition for some people going from, you know, maybe a uh, throw the book at people mentality to a more reformist minded mentality? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's something you always have to be mindful of, which is why our training, our interviewing, our recruiting has to be much different because um, we're in a time we're just working at a, at a prosecutor's office isn't the same. You have to know the culture and the character of the prosecutor um, with whom you're working. And was there a lot of turnover when you took over in your office? Absolutely. There's, there's, there's always turnover, you know what I mean? Um, not necessarily connected with me per se, but definitely related to, um, you know, the, the, it could be part of me, but I know some of it is certainly related to the, um, the compensation issues, um, other opportunities. So yeah, there's always turnover when there's a change of administration. And that, that's not something that I think we run from. I, I invite 
um, turnover that allows more room for those who are willing to carry out not just the practicing and the running of the machine, but those who are interested in pursuing the justice as I define it, as I see it, and reflective of my vision, not just in my office and as I speak, but in every single courtroom in which, you know, um, cases are being held out of my circuit. And did you get a lot of pushback within your office about some of the policies? There's, there's always questions. I, I wouldn't call it pushback, just uncertainty. Um, but I think that that's something we, we have to invite because in the transition, you have to be aware of what the other side is so that you know how to position your responses, so that you know how to deliver it. So, I, I mean, I can say that there, I have, a, um, have been fortunate to have built a team that they get it. And I'm curious, how did the death penalty issue come about? Um, so if you're, what I can tell you is that prior to me taking office, the death penalty, um, had been stricken down twice in less than two years as unconstitutional by both the Florida Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court based upon our um, procedure. And so when I, the entire time I ran, there was never any discussion of death penalty because at that time the process was, um, unconstitutional. So when I got ready to take office shortly thereafter, there was a horrific killing um, of a police officer by someone who had already killed his uh, pregnant girlfriend. Um, So it became where is this a death penalty case? And me having grown up with a level of it was consistent with the prosecutorial culture of, yeah, the highest penalty is death. You seek death. I initially was thinking to myself, maybe this is death. I was not a death penalty opponent until I had the authority to seek death. Um, that changed everything because, like I said, one of my goals was prosecutorial accountability. So before I moved forward, I had to make a decision on whether or not this was appropriate. So I ran into a lot of the research. I looked at a lot of the basis for the moratorium. I, 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 I researched a lot as it relates to deterrence, as it relates to public safety, um, the financial component of it. And I made a decision that it just was not the pursuit of justice that I wanted to sign my name on. And so how did it get from that point where you made the decision not to seek the death penalty uh, to uh, having it go up the court system? Did somebody file a lawsuit? Did the legislature get involved? Oh, no, after I um, made the decision, we had been inundated with phone calls for several reasons, um, candor, transparency, integrity, honesty, and just simply answering questions. I made a public announcement that I would not be pursuing death penalty. Um, within minutes, uh, the governor um, had requested me to recuse myself. Not sure how um, he was given the information, but it went straight up to the governor. And um, I spoke to him and declined to um, recuse myself, and then he removed uh, several cases, that the initial one and several other cases from my office. I then sued because I did not believe that he had a right to do that based upon um, the way that our laws are set up, the way that um, prosecutorial discretion has been established. Um, there were several issues with it, and I sued, and we um, had oral arguments, and then ultimately, um, despite a uh, two-justice dissent, um, it, the majority of the court ruled that he did have the authority to do that. It seems like a rather extraordinary decision for a governor to make. 
absolutely. Absolutely. I was always concerned of, um, like, what was the due process? You know, like, we're part of the justice system, and everyone is entitled to a level of due process. Like, did you review the file? Like, what information did you have? Or was it just emotional? So the problem was that um, we have conversations that are backward, as if I made an emotional decision when I had done the research, the studying, and I've definitely, I've handled cases, you know, I've, I've been a prosecutor to have someone question the level of information, intellect, and experience that I had, despite me having reviewed the facts and understanding the dynamics of it. So um, I definitely, I, I, I still question it to this day, but um, over time, it is my hope that the law will align with justice. And I, I, that's how I see the, the Supreme Court's ruling. The law, the law is the law. And um, we have an obligation to follow the law. That does not mean that it always is just, which is how you see historically so many of our laws have changed because we recognize over time that that particular law was someone's opinion. But that does not mean that it is, it is reflective of a true and just um, society or any reflection of our laws. And I think from the perspective of a reformer, one of the concerns is we've seen something similar happen in places like Philadelphia, where uh, Larry Krasner has enacted a bunch of uh, reforms and seen the state legislature and the attorney general there uh, try to take cases away. Uh, We've seen some pushback in in, uh, Massachusetts with Rachel Rollins. So it seems like that's that's a key threat to, to reform, right? I mean, absolutely. I think that's their, that's the last call. There's that like, like that's the last option is to, to, to take the highest, you know, um, authority in the state to begin to question, you know, individuals. But the problem is that we have never seen this done before. Like this is, this is extraordinary. So the question is, when, you know, um, states and people who hold those positions flip and have different ones, is there going to be a problem when they start taking cases because people are pursuing the death penalty, when they start taking cases because they disagree with the pursuit of justice? The problem is we are duly elected individuals, and our, our boss is really the people. And how do we overcome this? I think that it's just time, persistence, and consistency. The next question I had was, what plans do you have for the future at this point? You know, I think that the future, like, by title, is going to be determined over time. But I think it's most important to be clear that the purpose doesn't change. The purpose is the pursuit of justice, accountability, and understanding that our system needs fixing. And that goes across the board. You know, when you're talking about school-to-prison pipeline, you're talking about education. When you're talking about treatment versus um, punishing people, you're talking about mental health. When you're talking about, you know, jails and prisons, you're talking about medical care. There are so many um, areas of us as Americans that this touches on. And we have to be mindful of creating not just safer communities, but we want them healthy and thriving and successful. And we want to end this, you know, system where people are in a revolving door of the criminal justice system. One day a victim, the next day a defendant. We want people to live safely and to live healthy. And how do you view the future of uh, criminal justice reform? The future of criminal justice is forever changed. When people are strong enough to stand up and to speak out about 
series and decades of injustice that has impacted black and brown people, that has impacted poor people, that perpetuates a system of the, for, that benefits only the powerless, it is never going to be the same because there are now people who are in power who are not interested in perpetuating power to the powerful, but more importantly, giving some power to those people they serve so that they can take care of themselves, so that they can begin to, to, to be educated. They can get out of the system and maintain their jobs versus sitting in custody because they can't post bail. That they can teach their children and we can reduce recidivism. I don't think our criminal justice system will ever be the same since people have stood up and began to speak out. Well, I want to thank you for being on our show today. Gladly. Thank you for having me. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We were talking with Aramis Ayala, who is the state attorney who represents Orange and Osceola counties in Florida. Join us again next time for more episodes of Everyday Injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.